So I want you to uh, imagine a scenario uh, this evening. You wake up at two o'clock in the morning. You can hear dripping somewhere in the house. Your mind rushes back to the night before. You remember getting ready for bed. And you remember being in the bathroom. You remember brushing your teeth and washing your face. You remember turning the tap on. But you can't seem to remember turning it off. Oh no, you rush to the bathroom. It's flooded. Water is everywhere. Water is pouring down the steps, coming through the the ceiling uh, downstairs. What do you pray for in that situation? Do you pray for the ceiling to hold? Do you pray that there's no permanent damage? Do you pray that God will step in and reverse time and make it so that you never did it in the first place? I've been tempted to pray that prayer a few times. Do you just pray for strength to make it through? Is there even a right thing to pray for? Well, we're nearly at the end of our our series on prayer. And we've really been getting into the nitty gritty, haven't we? And this week is no different. What do we actually pray for? We're going to be looking at those two passages that we had read earlier, as well as the Lord's Prayer as we go through. And all of this should be taken in the light of previous weeks. If you haven't had a chance to come along, do listen online. And as I start this week, can I also acknowledge my debt to two books? If you want some good books to read on prayer... Uh, Can I recommend this one, Graham Goldsworthy, Prayer and the Knowledge of God. That's really helpful about the mechanics of prayer. And then also Prayer and the Voice of God, uh, which I've lent on heavily this this week when thinking what to pray. Uh, But it's good good material to help us uh, think through what to pray for. Um, And those are good places to go uh, for that information. So what should we pray for? Well, firstly, we should pray pray for the desires of God. We've said in previous weeks, haven't we, that prayer is a continuing of a conversation with God that started by God speaking. And the reason that God's spoken is that he wants us to pray for what he wants. So he actually tells us what to pray for. Not just in passages where he says, pray about this, but in revealing his heart and his purposes for the world and for us as individuals, as Christians. The whole Bible, if you like, is a lesson really in what God wants. So God works in our hearts to make us want what he wants as we open the Bible, as we see his purposes, as his spirit is at work in us. As he makes us more like his son, he makes us want more what his son wants. So there's that classic verse, isn't there? Psalm uh, 37 verse 4, which you'll see on the back of your uh, notice sheets. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not a, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back situation. What it's saying though is when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we want what he wants, then he will give us what we want, which is what he wants. It sort of goes around in a big circle. But that's what it's really talking about. God wants us to pray for what he wants. And that's partly why he's revealed his big plan to us. He wants to, us to join in that plan. And part of us doing that is that we pray. So if you remember back to the series that we did on, um, oh, I should have noted this down, uh, the one with Tony Payne. Um, uh, no, no, before that, actually, I was thinking, the course of your life. If you can remember all the way back to their guidance works as well, though, uh, to similar things. But if you remember, there was two big ideas as to what um, what God is doing in our world, what his big purposes are. God is bringing fallen people into the everlasting kingdom of his son. And he's making those redeemed people into the likeness of his son by the power of his spirit. 
that's really a summary of what God is doing in the world, bringing people into the kingdom of his son and then growing them into the likeness of his son. And that's what God is delighting to do. That's his big purpose for the world that we live in. So if we delight ourselves in the Lord, that's what should delight us too. Now you might think, oh, that seems quite narrow. But if you remember in that course we saw, actually that encompasses the whole of life. If you think about it, everything that we do is somewhere in that big picture. Because it's God's big plan for everything. So everything we pray for is included in that plan, if you think about it that way. God speaks his big plan and we respond in prayer for that plan. And there's no better example than that than the Lord's Prayer itself. So I'm not going to take us to a passage to read it. I'm figuring in a crowd here we probably know the Lord's Prayer uh, so we can work through it. But we could have gone as well to that passage in Titus that we looked at where God reveals what he wants for people. But we're going to go to the Lord's Prayer and have a think about how that characterises and typifies what we're talking about. Um, Did you know, for example, that the Lord's Prayer is also a response to God's word, as well as being part of God's word? Uh, Jesus models his model prayer on something else in scripture, and we're going to look at that um, for a few moments this evening. Now, I'm not intending to exhaust the Lord's Prayer as we look at this. I'm not saying this is everything there is to say on it. Uh, But just to show you an angle that you might not have thought of that can fuel at your prayers and help you see this principle of praying for the purposes of God. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll find it helpful to have it open. Ezekiel 36 and 37. But you didn't think that was coming, did you? Ezekiel 36 and 37. And we'll see why as we go through um, that this is showing God's purposes and Jesus prays in line with this. So just have that open. The first thing that we're told to pray for in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it, is hallowed be your name, hallowed be thy name. What we're asking for there is for God to hallow his own name, to uh, make it holy or show it to be holy. Now, name in the Bible is more to do with the reputation or character that you have. You know, like, um, you know, somebody might say, you've made my name mud in this town. It's only in a Western film, isn't it, when they, they say things like that. But if you think about it that way, hallowed be your name is the opposite. So, you know, you made my name mud in this town. It's actually saying we want God's name to be held up, his reputation to be seen for what it is. Now, let's have a look at Ezekiel 36, verses 22 uh, to 25. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So this is God speaking through Ezekiel the prophet, promising to bring back the children of Israel uh, from their exile. Uh, But actually, he's making promises, isn't he, there, um, that he's doing this for his own name. (coughs) So the Israelites have made God's name a bit like mud. But his plan here is to vindicate the holiness of his (coughs) great name. In other words, he reveals through scripture... That in the future he will act to hallow his own name, to vindicate its holiness. 
Uh, how? Well, we find out in the rest of the chapter by rescuing his people. But he rescues his people so that his name will be hallowed. So that people will see him for who he is, holy. So bear this in mind, I think Jesus knows these verses. I'm certain Jesus knows these verses and we'll see more as we go through. But Jesus prays for them what God has promised. God promises that he will vindicate the holiness of his name. So what does Jesus pray for? He prays for God's name to be hallowed. So really he's praying for that rescue, isn't he, that we're talking about here. That actually God would rescue his people. It's linked in with the idea that they'd be brought into the kingdom of his son, really. But what even is that kingdom? I know Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom, but we say your kingdom come. But what does that even mean? Well, we see again uh, in Ezekiel. If you have a look at Ezekiel 37, 22 to 25. This is God speaking again. And I'll make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over all of them. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, what would people have in mind? Well, it's most likely that they understood it as this kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. With a new David uh, as their king, a messianic uh, king with a kingdom. The kingdom here that we see is no longer scattered and divided, but gathered under one messianic head. So in other words, it's praying for Jesus to be king over more and more people, if you like. That's what we're praying for in your kingdom. If we think about that as the promise that Jesus is praying in line with, actually we're praying that the kingdom of God, this kingdom under Jesus, that messianic king, would come more and more. So in praying for it, we're praying both for it to spread over the earth that as we sang earlier you know jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth rise well we're praying that jesus would reign wherever the sun doth rise if you like but also in that final sense as well as christ returns it's got an end of the world feel to it doesn't it as we pray for the kingdom an eschatological edge to it Uh, so we're praying that his kingdom will come but that kingdom is really the the kingdom that's talking about here that is uh, fulfilled in christ So again, he's picking up on the promises of scripture and praying for them. The next bit is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll have a look at Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. (coughs) And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put uh, put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So as we pray for God's kingdom to come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God here is promising to give new hearts 
and an indwelling of God's spirit to cause us to do his will. That's what he's promising there. Now this was fulfilled at Pentecost as the spirit uh, fell on all believers. It continues to be true as the spirit still indwells all believers. So as we pray for his will to be done on earth, we're praying for many things. I accept that. But one way that we can look at it is we're actually praying for God's spirit to indwell people. Because that's what brings about God's will being done, his revealed will. So we're actually praying that his spirit would do his work in our hearts and the hearts of others. So we pray your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that again is in response to what God has already promised to do. Now, there's a change in emphasis in the prayer, isn't there, as we go through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it becomes more personal, doesn't it? We have, give us today our daily bread. I'm going to slightly change that, not because I don't think scripture's good enough. Uh, <laughs> it's very wrong. Um, but give us today tomorrow's bread. You can translate it either way. Uh, there's an age-old debate about how to translate the verse. Uh, for what it's worth, I think it's ambiguous. I think you can translate it either daily bread or tomorrow's bread. I don't think it's wrong to pray for our daily sustenance, but tomorrow's bread gives it that more eschatological edge, doesn't it? The bread that belongs to tomorrow. And that would fit in with what we're seeing in Ezekiel as well. So Ezekiel 36, uh, 29 to 30. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree And the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Do you see here, God is promising provision for his people, promising food, promising bread uh, for his people. It's a promise of bread for tomorrow, isn't it, in a way? It's looking forward to the future. When they come into the kingdom, there will be plentiful food. I think we're also supposed to be reminded of the manna in the wilderness, If you remember in the wilderness, they could only collect that day's worth's bread. Apart from on Friday. Friday, they could collect tomorrow's bread, if you like. The bread for that special coming day, that Sabbath rest that was coming. There could be a hint of that in Jesus' words as he asked us to pray for tomorrow's bread. The bread that belongs to the kingdom, the bread that belongs to the end. So again, it points us forward, but again... It's going back to God's word and praying in line with what God has already revealed. Forgive us our trespasses. While our Ezekiel passage is littered with forgiveness. Ezekiel 36 uh, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Uh, 36 29. um, And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Uh, 33 as well, 36, 33. For this says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. Actually, there's a promise of cleansing, of forgiveness. And we forget how rare that is in the Old Testament. uh, And actually how hard it is in the Old Testament to be forgiven. The age of forgiveness, if you like, where forgiveness was for everyone, was a future age for the Old Testament. It's the age that we now live in. So it's worth remembering that God who is, is, is promising forgiveness of sins, but he's already promised it in the Old Testament. And just Jesus prays for it. He's claiming that promise. It's also worth remembering with that prayer that, it's, uh, that God is not expecting us to be perfect. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but we, in the, the model prayer that we have, there's a section asking for forgiveness. So if he expects perfection of it, why would we, we need it? 
So God doesn't expect sinless perfection of his people, but he does expect us to take up that offer of forgiveness because it's now offered to us and to forgive others as well. And then lead us into temptation. Sorry, not <coughs> get the yeah, right here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll have a look again at Ezekiel thirty-seven and verse twenty-three. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people. And they will, and um, I will be their God. Do you see here that that's a promise of delivery from evil? God will cleanse our hearts. God will work in us. There's a promise that we'll be made holy. Uh, Ezekiel 37 verse 28. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies, makes holy Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Forever. Now, arguably, the chapters that follow as well, the prophecy against Gog and the other nations, show the downfall of evil and those nations which had led the Israelites into temptation. So Jesus is praying in line with what's actually revealed in Scripture, probably Ezekiel 36 and 37. He's praying that what God has promised would happen. So even the prayer that we're told to pray in the Bible is in line with something that's already revealed in the Bible, in Scripture. Now, I don't know about you as we go through that, you sort of think, well, aren't they sort of all praying roughly for the same thing? Wouldn't your prayers get really repetitious and just sort of, oh, we pray for God's kingdom, yeah, we pray for God's kingdom. It's all about God's kingdom. Well, no, I don't think they do get boring. Uh, first reason is that, uh, three reasons. One is that life is amazingly diverse. So praying for someone's sanctification, for example, might look incredibly different depending on their situation, their age, their issues, their temptations, their background. The same is true for ourselves as we think about every day that we live is different. Uh, So there are always things to pray for in line with God's purposes. The second thing, the second reason why they won't get um, just turn into repetitions is that the Bible is amazingly diverse. One message, but thousands of different angles on that same message. Hundreds of different ways of exploring and describing the same ideas. So Ezekiel and Mark sort of essentially have the same message, don't they? Pointing us to Jesus. But they sound incredibly different, don't they? You can tell which one you're reading. The Psalms and Genesis sound different, but they have the same point. All of them point us to variations on the same theme. It's a bit like with music. Now, I had to check this for Caroline because I know nothing about music. This sounds wrong to me, but you, you can correct me afterwards. She said there are 12 different notes in an octave. I thought there'd be eight. It's, it's an octave, but apparently it's semi, there's other things. Um, but you could say, you know, there are just 12 different notes. Doesn't all music just sound the same? Well, no, actually. Music sounds amazingly different, doesn't it? There are infinite variations. So the Bible is the same. It gives us all sorts of different angles. And then you combine that with all sorts of different situations. And then combine that again with the fact that we are all different as we pray. So we're all going to pray slightly differently. Diverse situations, diverse Bible passages, diverse people. Well, no two prayers should be exactly the same, should they? There'll be common themes and patterns. Well, there should be, shouldn't there? If we're praying in line with God's purposes. But there are infinite combinations, just like music. 
it can be beautiful as well. So the way that we pray will be different from somebody else, from everybody else. And that is okay. God made us all different for a reason. But the big themes are there and decided for us. The big movements, if you like, in the music are already in place. But we can riff on those themes. That's a word Tim Keller uses. I don't think I'd sound too cool saying it, but Tim Keller says it. Sounds cool. Uh, But we can riff, uh, riff on those themes. We can pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, or, or another passage like that passage in Timothy that we were talking about earlier. And riff it on our current situation or circumstances or who we're praying for. God expects us to pray for what he wants, but he doesn't want us to pray lifeless prayers, just repeating the same thing over and over again. He wants us to engage our hearts. Which brings us nicely uh, to our second point, which will be a bit shorter, the anxieties of the heart. God wants us to pray for the anxieties of the heart. So God wants us to pray for what we want and the things that face us, but in the light of what he wants. So even as we pray about the anxieties of our hearts, which we'll talk about in a few moments' time, don't forget the first point. Actually, our goal is a continuing conversation with God. We continue the conversation that he has started. I don't know if you've ever had uh, uh, a conversation where somebody's sort of undeliberately changed the subject. You ever had that? Where you're talking about something, and then seemingly out of the blue, they start talking about something else. And it feels really uncomfortable, doesn't it? I feel really uncomfortable when somebody does that. It's almost like they've just been waiting for their turn to speak. It's not really a conversation. I'm saying something and then then suddenly they want to talk, you know, I'm I'm talking about uh, the weather and they want to talk about sport or something. It just suddenly comes in. Well, we don't want our prayer to do that, do we? Actually, if God is saying, here is what I am doing in the world, we don't want to throw a completely different thing in there as though we're not listening to what he's saying. And yet, we are bid to cast our anxieties on him. I put 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, uh, sorry, 6 to 7, uh, on the back of your sheet there. Uh, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So it's not that we're not to cast our anxieties on him, but it's worth thinking, what are God's purposes um, is, is it then that God doesn't care about our worries? Does he just want us to sort of carry on the conversation? Well, no. But praying in line with God's purposes, apart from anything else, can help us understand whether what we're worrying about is really worth worrying about. So, for example, if you're you know, worried about getting the right cheese on your supermarket order, or you know, you're worried about what someone will think about, uh, what, what someone thinks about what you're wearing... If you struggle to fit it into those big purposes of God, it's probably a clue that it's not worth worrying about. It could be that they do fit in, but if you're really struggling, then probably they're not on that same uh, level. And yet we still do, though, don't we? We do worry about those things. So is it wrong to pray about them? Well, no, God cares for us and even our smallest worries. It says in that, that Philippians passage, doesn't it? But in everything, I don't. I think that includes everything because that's what it says. He asks us to come to him with everything. Because the danger is that we just take them everywhere else, don't we? Our worries and our cares. If we care enough to take something to a friend, then we should care enough to take it to God as well. 
Sometimes that means, though, that we'll think about things differently as we pray for our anxieties. Sometimes we'll have to say along with Jesus, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I'm happy enough to pray like that, to say, well, not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus prayed like that, I'm happy to pray like that. It's okay that, to say, if it be your will, if you genuinely don't know if it is. I think that reflects the reality of the situation. It's not showing a lack of faith. So we can come to God with all our different cares and worries. So why don't we? Well, we tell ourselves, don't we, uh, sometimes that God doesn't care. God doesn't want to hear about that, does he? Prayer is for big things, you know. Prayer is for world peace and a cure for cancer. Well, yes it is. But I don't think God wants our prayers to sound like a Miss World uh, contest interview. You know what I mean? We are not Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Perfect. We do actually have real anxieties in our own lives as well. And what we're told to do with them is cast them on him. We can only actually do that if you think about it, if you have them in the first place. If nothing ever worried you or nothing ever made you anxious, he couldn't tell us to cast our anxieties on him. That's what we're to do. So it's not wrong to have anxieties in a way, as long as we cast them on him. The second reason that we don't take our cares to him is perhaps we prefer to talk to someone more tangible. We forget that God is real uh, and that our communication with him is real. So people talk about talking out a problem, don't they? You know, get, somebody told me today to get something off my chest. Um, and we can do that with God. We really can because God really does listen. Um, and that helps us with our worries, doesn't it? As it does with a friend. If we take them to God, well, he really hears us. It's not that we're sort of faking it as we talk to God and then we talk to a human being and that's real. Actually, if we get something off our chest with God, it should go off our chest. The last reason why we don't take our worries to God is that I think that worry can become a way of life. We can become comfortable in a state of worry. I know that sounds crazy, but I think it really does happen. I can see that in my own life at times. We're happier worrying about something than taking it to God. That can happen for a couple of reasons. It can be habit. It can sort of become our default position to worry. We saw last week that habit can be a powerful force if we use it for good with prayer. But it can also be a powerful force the other way as well. So it's sometimes we get into the situation where actually it's our habit to worry. We don't know how to feel if we're not worrying. We've got so used to it. And it can be really hard to break that pattern. Another reason why it can become a way of life is that we worry that about continuing to worry if we try and stop. I'll say that again. We worry about continuing to worry if we try and stop. We worry that we can't not worry, if you like. And that can paralyse us. You know, better not to try and have your worries confirmed that you can't stop worrying. It feels more comfortable to just keep worrying than to find out that we can't stop so what do we do in the face of all this? Well, we have to remind ourselves constantly of Philippians chapter 4. That needs to become the way of life for us. I'm starting to worry. Then I need to start to pray. If it's worth worrying about, then believe me, it's worth praying about. In Philippians, we're told to pray with thankfulness as well in that. Why are we thankful? Well, because we know that God hears our prayers. Because we know that actually when we pray, 
God answers our prayers again and again and we start to see that. If we cast our anxieties on him, if we do what the Philippians passage says, we'll train our minds to trust God. Not just in words, you know, we, we all affirm, don't we, that we trust God. But we'll start to believe it in practice as we see God again and again, taking our anxieties, taking our cares and hearing them and answering them. So why aren't our hearts overflowing with thankfulness to God? I think it's probably that we don't ask him for much. Or we just ask him for the same things over and over again. But when we cast our cares on him, we suddenly discover how much we have to thank him for. Even if that's just waking up in the middle of the night to the sound of dripping, to discover that it's actually rain on the window. God wants us to bring to him the anxieties of our heart. So how should we answer at 2am when disaster strikes? Well, I'll let you chat about that over uh, coffee afterwards. Uh, You can tell me the answer.